Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you that we serve a God who is so faithful. God, that we can look back and we know all through our life that you've never failed us. God, you're never going to fail us. And we thank you that we can rest in that comfort of a God who has us in his hands, who watches over us, and is always faithful. So we just worship you as faithful, faithful God this morning. We worship you as a holy and a good God, and we love you. And we love you so much. We pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we hear your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been reading in 2 Samuel chapter 22, the song of David. And he pens this song at the end of his life. He's being reflective. He's looking back. And he's discovering all that God has been to him. And the first four verses, we discovered that he discovered God to be personal. Then we find that God is powerful through prayer. And now we'll see that he discovers that God is profound, beginning in verse 8. You know, we live on a remarkable planet. We live on a beautiful planet. It's, it's just laced with design. If you study animals, if you study the world, climates, if you just, just study the way things are, you, you can't help but see the wonderful design of God. This sphere is the right distance from the sun. We're not too cold, we're not too close or too hot so that life can, can survive here. The world spins at the right rate for the gravity to be just right for us. And it's beautiful. The sun sets, uh, the sun rises, the different kinds of country that there are in our world, the tropical forests, the desert, the mountains, the, the, the seas of the world, the different colors of the seas of the world are just beautiful, gorgeous. And God gave us a beautiful ball, and he has given us a powerful ball to live on. If you think about how powerful the world is, you think about the power of a thunderstorm. When I was a, a child in San Angelo, we had a thunderstorm that came through, and it produced softball-sized hail. Now, the hail was weighing four and five pounds, some of it, and, and you just think about how strong that storm was that ice would form way up in the clouds, 30, 40,000 feet in the air, and then it would get too heavy and drop down, and then before it hit the ground, it would, it would get caught up in the updraft and go back up, and more ice would be added, and, and, and that would have to happen time and time again to produce softball-sized hail. And that softball-sized hail went through the roofs. It made gigantic holes in the rooftops all across town. It was an amazing thing. It hit, it hit uh, uh, animals and killed them. It hit, it hit cows and killed them. It hit horses and killed them. And it was an unbelievable sight after it was over. And, and it, obviously, this world is very powerful. You think about hurricanes. You think about tornadoes. You may have seen pictures or even actually seen the results of a tornado. A tornado can take a piece of straw and can jam it into a telephone pole like it's a nail. 
Now, that's quite a feat. That, that is unbelievable to me to think about the force of a tornado. And then, of course, we've seen the destructiveness of hurricanes. And depending upon the conditions being right or perhaps wrong, a hurricane can just wipe out cities and it can wipe out homes. And, and not only do you have the high winds and all the debris it blows, but then you've got that water surge that comes in and is so destructive and so powerful. Lightning, my stars. Lightning can, can hit the ground and, and can take out trees, and, and it's an unbelievable uh, power that, that this world produces. Uh, earthquakes. Man, that, there's, you know, if a gigantic earthquake happens, there's not much we can do about that. I mean, I know that our building codes are trying to get better so that buildings and skyscrapers and such can survive an earthquake, but if that earth really does quake, man, there, there's no building can stand against that. And I understand that the Himalayas is a result of, of plates being pushed on top of each other, the plate from Africa coming with the plate of Asia, and these two forces come down in the Himalayan mountains have been made by these two gigantic plates of the earth crust just forming over themselves. Now, the power to accomplish that is mind-boggling to me. That's that's just hard to understand. Our world replenishes itself. Water's an interesting thing, isn't it? Water is used, but it's always there. Now, in some parts of the country, perhaps they have a shortage of water, but as far as I understand, there's never a shortage of water. There's always water somewhere in the world, and, and the water evaporates, and it goes up in the clouds, and then it rains down. We use that water. We treat that water. It goes through the sewer system, but the best sewer system of all is rain that hits the ground, and, and it doesn't matter how dirty that water is, our ground has the ability, as it goes hundreds of feet down on the ground, when it hits the, the, the water table, it's pure water. And over and over and over, we can pollute the water, but this world is going to do its thing, and it's going to clean the water. Now, you think about that. The world's been around. It doesn't matter if you think it's an old earth or a young earth. The water's been around a long, long time, and it just recycles, and, and we've got to have water. And God has established a world where it, re, it just recycles that water. It's an amazing planet God has created. It's an amazing, beautiful ball. Now, to make this world, you've got to be a lot stronger than the creation. So no matter how powerful we think the world is, and how well the world can recoup itself. I, when that British petroleum well burst in the Gulf, out the coast of Louisiana, you remember it spilled thousands of barrels of oil into the Gulf. 
And newsmen were just beside themselves, and there were stories about it. And how in the world are we going to survive this? And it's going to destroy the coastline of the Gulf, and, and fisheries are going to die, and people lose their jobs, and it's going to be a horrible thing that's going to take place. And there was a professor from the University of Texas in El Paso that was on the TV, and the interviewer did not get what he wanted to get from him. He asked him questions. This was his expertise. He taught this. He wrote books on the world and things in, in science. And, and they asked him, how long will it take for the Louisiana and for the Gulf to get back to normal? And he said, if we left it alone, it wouldn't take that long. It, it'll blow your mind, he said. It's a, it's a remarkable thing the world has. And he said, now, it's going to wash up on shore, and, and people are there going to clean up. They're going to do these things. But even if none of that takes place, it will take care of itself. And the, and the reporter says, what do you mean it's going to take care of itself? This is a horrible, horrible tragedy we've had. He said, do you understand that in the seas of our world, there are, there, there's multiple times the amount of oil seeping into the ocean every day, all the time in our world. And he said, far more than what's seeping into the ocean in the Gulf. And he said, you don't even know about that. And, and the way the salt water is, the way the climates are, the way the currents are, the way that our world is designed it just cleans itself, and it's going to happen. And now to have a world like that, that can clean itself, that can recycle itself, that can be so powerful and so destructive with all those different ways, you've you got to understand that the master designer of this world is far more powerful than those powerful things we see in our world. And we got to kind of get in touch with that. We've got to understand that. And in our scriptures today, in this part of the song, that's what David is getting in touch with. That's what David is aware of. That's his understanding. And David is using all the problems, all the enemies, all the fights, all the conflicts that he's experienced. And he's still the king. And David is saying, man, all that I've been through, all that I've experienced, there's no good explanation of why I still be, should be king today. The only explanation I have that I'm still king today is how powerful God is. And that's what we need to learn from today's lesson, a little bit of just how powerful God is. Now, when it comes to God, we've all got an understanding of his power. We all have some awarenesses of his power. And what David is saying today will help us take a little more of the ceiling off. Because our responses to life really has a lot to do with our understanding of how big God is. Now, if, if our understanding of God is limited. If our understanding of God is that God really isn't that powerful, that a tornado is more powerful than God, that a hurricane is more powerful than God, if we don't understand that God is far more powerful than the power that we understand, the power that we've experienced, we're always going to struggle with faith. We're always going to struggle with hope in him. We're always going to struggle with trust. And David said, towards the end of his life, 
And that's when we should really fully begin to comprehend just how powerful God is. He had experienced him over and over and over. He knew God to be absolutely all-powerful, omnipotent. There's nothing he can't do. There's nothing he can't accomplish. That, that we would come to the point where the ceiling of our understanding, our awareness of God's power would be removed. And the more quality of life we have here depends on how powerful we believe God to be. And has that experience translated into us? That experience of almighty, powerful God makes a difference. It makes a difference in our faith, our trust, our hope, our waking up in the morning and trusting him for all that God is able to do. But it's interesting how, how David defines God. And verses 8 through 20 is David attempting to define God. Now, we could say he's the hurricane. There's a song that we sing every now and then from, from uh, uh, David Crowder about the hurricane love of God. Well, that's his way of trying to describe how powerful God's grace is, how powerful his love is. But honestly, describing a hurricane situation and the wet kiss that he talks about there, that's his attempt to try to describe what God means to him. And it obviously, when you consider that God made this world and he's far more greater than a hurricane, then he's far more greater than taking the, the branches and moving them over the palm trees, that God is greater than that. But that's, that's his ability to describe how wonderful God is. And, and we are limited in describing God. Our definition of God is always limited. And so David does the very best he can. So look and, and, and let's kind of go through these verses and, and try to understand what David is trying to communicate to us. Verse 8. Now, verse 7, he cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard him, the prayer that he had learned. Verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Because he was angry. David had, had experienced that God was going to move heaven and earth to accomplish the foundation of his reign as the king. And he experienced God moving. He experienced God's hand. He experienced God doing the unbelievable, the unexplainable. And the only way he has to talk about it is like the foundations of the world trembled like an earthquake. He said in verse 9, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flame forth from him. And so he's trying to describe this being that is so powerful, and when he's angry, there's so much energy that comes from him that, it, that it's like smoke pouring out of his nostrils, a devouring fire from his mouth. You may have seen uh, that fire in California this past week. It's a, I mean, think about the power of fire, 90 mile an hour winds on a fire. 
Oh, my gosh. It just goes through houses so quick. It can devastate uh, uh, a forest so quickly. I mean, the intensity of the heat and the fire just consumes everything. And he, and he saw that God, when God goes to work, and when he see that God is angry, that it's like a fire. It's all-consuming. In verse 10, he says, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub, in verse 11, and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. And so he's describing what he understood to be power beyond definition, which is what God is. Power beyond definition. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rolled on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of the fire flame forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. I mean, a big clap of thunder rattles the walls, doesn't it? And, and so David had experienced a big clap of thunder. You know, that spring day when you're sitting around and all of a sudden a storm is coming in and there's that huge thunder that just shocks everyone and catches you off guard. And, and that's what he's describing here, the huge thunder of his voice. In verse 15, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. He's thinking about his enemies. Look in verse 16. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. And so in verses 8 through 17, he's describing the undescribable. He's trying to give a definition to the one that you can't define. And he's using the only words that he could use. So you would take the experiences you've had with power, with great energy, and you'd try to give description to it. You know, I was thinking about what would we use today if we're writing a song? Well, if you've been in a real bad earthquake, perhaps you would describe the earthquake. If you've been in a tornado, perhaps you would describe what it's like to embrace that tornado. If you've been in a real bad hurricane, you might talk about how those winds, how powerful those winds were. And, and that's what he's doing. If, if you were out at, at Lockheed and perhaps you work on the engines, you might describe that that what it's like to be right behind that engine when it goes into afterburner full speed ahead. I mean, the amount of, of, of wind that comes out of that thing, thrust that comes out of that thing. If you've ever been and watched the Blue Angels, see how they're all lined up there, and, and when they start their engines, they put on the smoke, and that's a powerful scene to see behind them, to see everything behind them just be blown away. If there's any dirt or, or any paper, it's just gone, man. It just flows away, and you can see the power of those engines. 
You would try to take your powerful experiences. If you've ever been on some, uh, maybe some real white rapids, you know, real powerful rapids and rode them, you might describe how powerful that water is. And, and you would put it on paper, trying to define how God is. But you'd always fall short. You never could get there because God is undefinable. And if, if, if we, you know, one of our real problems and one of the problems with religion is religion, which is man's way to be right with God, is he wants God to be defined. He wants God to be clearly understood. We want to explain God to be a certain way. And the truth is you can't do that. You can't explain God so everyone will understand. That requires faith. We have faith there. And, and if we really think about it, why would we want God to be an, a, a deity that we can explain easily? He's so much beyond that. Unexplainable is God. And, and that's what we see here, his attempt to explain God. But yet, we would have to say it falls short. But then in verses 18, 19, and 20, he brings the personal part to it. In verse 18, he rescued me from my strong enemy, the giants, the Philistines, the Assyrians, Absalom. Oh, Absalom was good. Absalom was a great leader. He was just misguided. Absalom was a formidable foe that he experienced, his own son. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Interesting, David says at the end of his life, I recognize, David says, I recognize that the only reason I'm still king is because of God. I I couldn't do it myself. I couldn't defeat. I couldn't lead our military well enough to defeat them. I didn't have enough strength. I didn't have enough horses, not enough chariots, not enough bowmen. I didn't have enough spear truckers to be able to defeat my strong enemy. And I'm here to tell you that the only reason I'm still king today is because of Almighty God. That's what David experienced at the end of his life. He says in verse 19, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He said, it didn't matter what kind of shape I found myself in. It didn't matter how great the odds were. God was my support. Now, verse 20, he brought me out into a broad place. If you're claustrophobic, you might like that. He brought me out into a broad place. He brought me out to a place of freedom. Now, when you're a marked man, a hunted man, you don't have a lot of freedom. You got to walk and be careful of every corner, behind every barrier, behind every wall. You got to be careful of it. And you've always got to be watching behind your back. But he said, he brought me out to a broad place for all to see out in the open, protected, supported, delivered. That's what he explains. He says, God is so strong. God is so powerful that 
even though I face enemies that I couldn't defeat myself, I was able to walk out in a broad place for all to see, completely unfettered. That's what David experienced, all because of Almighty God. He rescued me. And he gives the reason why God rescued him. He says, because he delighted in me. David says God doted on him. God loved him. God liked him. God liked spending time with him. God appreciated him. After all, God said David was a man after his own heart. And and that's an amazing thing that he says that Almighty God, the one who's greater than the earthquake, greater than the hurricane, greater than the volcano, greater than the hailstorm, God who's greater than anything that you can imagine, he delighted in me. David, who sinned with Bathsheba, David, who murdered Uriah, David, who did not take care of his family, David, who made mistake after mistake after mistake, David said, I learned at the end of my life that God, Almighty God, the most powerful being you can ever describe, you can't describe him, he's undefinable, he's unexplainable, he delighted in me, he loved me, he cared for me, he liked me. That's God. That's how wonderful God is. If you're, you know, just kind of wishy-washy about God, not quite sure, you're curious, man, you, you ever been around a real zealous Christian that wants more for you? And they've experienced that God is greater and more powerful than all the powers of this world. And God has been personal to them. And he has made the difference in them. Don't you see why they're so zealous for you to understand that? Because David said, God who trembles, God who snorts fire from his nostrils, God who is all-powerful, God whose fire consumes everything, God who when he judges, it's complete, it's sure. And when judgment comes, it's going to be horrible for all those in the line, in the fire of God's judgment. God, Almighty God, the creator, the designer, the one that's made all this world, delights in me. God delights in you. God loves us. God likes us. God wants to spend time with us. Our friend Kyle Y. One of the things I've learned from Kyle Y is this. I, I believe God likes him better than God likes me. <laughs> and let me tell you why. Kyle Y is up at 4 o'clock in the morning talking with God. Kyle Y talks with God all the time. Now, for me, I, I put this in a very practical way. I got three little grandgirls. I'm going to get to go see them a week from tomorrow. Now, think about this. We got the magic of FaceTime. Now, my oldest granddaughter, when we FaceTime them, or they FaceTime us, she's always too busy. She's always got something going on. They will say, Lexi, say hello to Big Dog and Grammy. She'll go, hi. She's got her nose in a book. She's got a craft project. She's got this going on, that going on. And, and, and they got to make her talk to us. 
Now, for the longest time, the middle one, she runs over and she gets the camera and she talks to us. Now, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, <laughs> but let me tell you, her wanting to talk with us kind of makes you go, aha. So I'm going to, when I go to the store this week, I'm going to buy some candy bars. I'm going to get a couple of the little ones, but for Mila, I'm going to get the big one. <laughs> of course, I, I know I won't. <laughs> of course, I won't. But do you see what I'm trying to say? Now, I know God likes us all the same, but he wants us to talk with him. He wants us to spend time with him. He wants us to love him with all of our heart. He wants us to be so unfettered here on this planet that we love him with all of our heart, and we don't care what people think about that. We don't care what people think of us. We don't care if they think we're crazy. Paul said, if you think I'm crazy, it's for your benefit. If you think I'm uh, diligent, it's for your benefit. That we love God with all of our heart, with all of our being. We recognize that he delights in us. And we just want to love him, love him, just love him. Because Almighty God, in spite of all of our weaknesses, our sins, our hiccups, our problems, our hang-ups, all that stuff, with all the stuff that we get wrong, God just delights in us. I thought this week how interesting it would be. I've told you about the possibility of my royal English blood. And I think it's a real high possibility. Now, if you watch Doubt Natty, my great-grandmother and my grandmother had a life of service in Woburn Abbey. They took care of the household of the Duke of Bedford. So if you're a Doubt Abbey fan, you watch that and you can see how I, 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 I must admit, I thought it was sissy to watch Doubt Abbey, but about... Two or three months ago, uh, because the movie was coming out, Susan and Amy were watching Downton Abbey all over to watch it. And I watched one episode, and I went, that's not so bad. That's kind of a fun story. And I wanted to see what's going to happen next. And, and it began to dawn on me, this is my first time to see how my, I never met my great-grandmother. I met my grandmother, but I never knew what it was like, life was like for them. And, and my grandfather was born in 1904. And so Downton Abbey, the story of Downton Abbey, especially the first years, that's the way life was. I've seen Woburn Abbey. It's a great big complex, a great big house, a great big wall around it, and it's got vast grounds. And, and just like uh, the, 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 the Lord of Downton Abbey was in charge of all the countryside all around the little village there, that's the way it was for the Duke of, of Bedford. Descendants of Charles II... Better than Charles I, but whew, there's some of that blood going through my veins. Read about Charles II, and some good, some not so good. Now, between my aunt and my mother, 
My Aunt Shirley, there was always this disagreement. My Aunt Shirley was about four or five years older than my mother. And there was always this disagreement that my mom would say that when she was a small girl there in Greenfield, England, that she met my grandfather's father. And Aunt Shirley would say, Pat, we did not. We did not. Patricia, we did not meet him. I've never met him, and you never met him. And she said, oh, I remember him coming over the house on Sundays. She goes, it never happened. And my aunt got so upset with my mother, always talking about it. I'm going to prove it to her, she said. And so uh, she went and went through all the records and found my grandfather's birth certificate. And on my grandfather's birth certificate, when his mother was living a life of service at Woburn Abbey, there is no one listed as the father. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> there you go. Now, Aunt Shirley said, Lee, who, was your, who is your great-grandfather? I looked at that deal. I said, we don't know. She said, that's right. So, your great-grandmother was either covering up for someone or someone really powerful fathered your grandfather, the Duke of Bedford. <laughs> Imagine this. I get a phone call tomorrow, and the phone call is this. All the heirs of the Duke of Bedford have expired. And I am the oldest living male of royal blood. They found the document that proves that and all that's in it. And they want me to pack my bags and fly to England because I need to assume my posts, my rightful posts, as the Duke of Bedford in Bedfordshire, the home of John Bunyan. I see it. I would say, all right, I'm going to get on over there. And so I get over there, and I walk into Woburn Abbey, and they, the, the, the people are standing there, sir, sir, how y'all doing? It's going in here. <laughs> By the way, ain't wearing no tuxedo for dinner at night. Not going to do it. Not going to. Here's your quarter, sir, and here's so-and-so. He'll be dressing you. He ain't dressing me. Be, they're going to be changed in the house. First thing y'all need to do is get out there and start learning how to smoke meat. We're going to smoke meat all the time. <laughs> so y'all just learn. And so I have to go to London and meet at Buckingham Palace with the Queen as she uh, knights me as the Duke of Bedford. And I spend time with the Queen of England. I get to talking with her. She said, you know, usually when we knight people, they wear a tie. Not anymore. The American's not going to do it. And, and I have to spend time with the queen because she's going to indoctrinate me about how everything works. Now, I know that my charming, remarkable, charismatic personality is going to win her over. Can you imagine in the press, it's talking about, they can't believe that the queen has taken such a fancy, such a liking to this new American duke that's taken over Woburn Abbey. And they would list all the change that happened. They're, they're eating dinner in cargo shorts from Duluth Trader and flip-flops. What a deal this is, you know, and, and it, how it's, it's turning the world of, of sophistication up on its ear. 
And the Queen of England would call me and says, you know, I'm having some trouble with Harry and William, and they don't quite understand how to get things done. And I've taken a liking to you, and I like your kind of philosophy in life, and I want you to spend time with William and Harry and help them. And William and Harry would revolt. And, and they would say, this guy is a redneck hick, a hillbilly from Texas, and he doesn't know anything about culture. He doesn't know the right spoon to use. He doesn't know the right fork to use. And it's just, this is not the way life is. But the queen would say, I want you boys to listen to him because I delight in him. Even when everyone else, like David, may view him a certain way, God liked him just like the Queen of England would like me <laughs> if she only had a chance. Now, now, isn't it a wonderful thing that Almighty God likes you? Help us, Lord, to accept that. In Jesus' name, amen. Esther's.